The following episode contains descriptions of police violence and suicide. Please use discretion. Um, I'm, I'm really embarrassed by the fact that I was in Estonia all the time. So uh, I was, you know, when I think back, I, I should have done more. I should have been the person who organized it, that um, human chain. But however, uh, I was psychologically very stressed. Back then, I didn't know what to do. It was actually a very uh, existential struggle about what I should have done. I thought of, you know, going back to Hong Kong and fight, but um, I decided not to do that. I decided to write opinion articles to raise awareness in Estonia and in other European countries. Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. Hello everyone, my name is Iverson Ng. I'm a columnist uh, based in Estonia and um, I have been living in Estonia for five years and originally I'm from Hong Kong. Iverson Ng came to Seattle last spring to attend the annual conference for the Association for the Advancement of Baltic Studies and to display an exhibit at the UW Libraries about the Hong Kong pro-democracy protests of 2019. The exhibit highlighted one protest event in particular. On August 23, 2019, over 210,000 Hong Kongers joined hands in a 60-kilometer human chain to protest police violence and to demand democratic reforms. This human chain, called the Hong Kong Way, took place on the 30th anniversary of another human chain protest, the Baltic Way of 1989 in which approximately 2 million Estonians, Latvians, and Lithuanians formed a 690-kilometer human chain across the three countries to protest the Soviet occupation. The Baltic Way of 1989 was itself an anniversary. Its organizers chose the date August 23rd to raise awareness of and to protest the Soviet-Nazi non-aggression treaties' secret protocols, which had been agreed upon exactly 50 years before, on August 23, 1939. In those secret protocols, Soviet and Nazi leaders agreed that Germany would invade and occupy Western Poland, while the Soviet Union would invade and occupy Eastern Poland and the Baltic countries. The two empires executed the plan, and less than a year later, in 1940, formal Soviet annexation of the Baltic states was complete. The Baltic states remained under Soviet control, without local democratic institutions, for the next half-century. Less than a year after the 1989 Baltic Way protest, the three Baltic states declared their independence on the basis that the Nazi-Soviet secret protocols were illegal and null, and by 1991, their independence was recognized internationally. Although separated by 30 years and half a globe apart, The 1989 Baltic Way protest and the 2019 Hong Kong Way protest reveal a common truth between the Baltics and Hong Kong. Two peoples fighting for liberal democracy 
and autonomy from illiberal authoritarian communist oppression. I think the biggest motivation for me is that I somehow project my Hong Kong identity into Estonia, where I see Estonia is a small country of 1.3 million inhabitants, where it has a huge neighbor, Russia, and the size is actually not comparable between them at all. And when you look into Hong Kong and China, it is the similar story, even though officially Hong Kong is part of China, but because of what I explained about the uh, differences between Hong Kong's autonomous system is uh, British tradition, as well as the um, sense of fair play that, that it has. And Hong Kong is quite differentiated uh, from China, and that's why in a lot of ways that Hong Kong sees ourselves as just Hong Kongers but not Chinese. Um, so getting back to that motivation part, I think, is about the idea that I always struggled with my uh, Hong Kong identity because uh, when I was in Denmark in 2015, I was uh, saying that, well, I'm Hong Kong, I'm from Hong Kong, and people don't understand and ask, like, so Hong Kong is part of China, so why do you think you're not Chinese? And I had to explain myself uh, time and time again. And thanks to all these protesters in 2019, I think we have shown the world that why Hong Kongers are Hong Kongers, and we are willing to pay everything uh, for the identity that we will hold dear to. And I think that is something I would project myself to, to Estonia because Estonia is clearly a nation, a country, part of the NATO uh, and the EU. Uh, so it is important to see that um, being an Estonian migrant, that it uh, it also gives me a sense of belonging that I'm part of the Estonian society, even though um, I'm from a very different uh, ethnic uh, background compared to Estonians or let's say Russian-speaking Estonians. But then um, I do think that culturally I'm quite um, integrated to the country. I'm accepted by not just my close friends around me, but also the communities and, and also the um, the whole country as, as a whole that uh, people understand that I'm fighting for Hong Kong while being an Estonian migrant. So all these factors combined, it, it makes me feel that um, I'm part of this country and, and I'm also proud of my origin as a Hong Konger. The liberal values to which Iverson refers, autonomy, democracy, and impartial judiciary are a consequence of Hong Kong's history as a British colony. The colony lasted from 1841 to 1997, when Britain ceded the colony to China. Under the terms of the treaty, China agreed to preserve the autonomy of Hong Kong's economic, judicial, and democratic institutions under the one-country-two-systems model. China, however, broke the terms of the treaty, and in 2014, they passed a law requiring candidates for the office of chief executive in Hong Kong to be pre-approved by the Chinese Communist Party before running for office. Over 100,000 Hong Kongers protested the change by occupying streets and government buildings, and they were met with police violence. Protesters shielded themselves from tear gas and rubber bullets with umbrellas, giving rise to the name the Umbrella Revolution. Iverson was a student journalist in 2014, and he covered the protests and police violence. In 2014, I was a student journalist who uh, spent most of my time in the 79-day occupation movement in Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kongers demanded to have universal suffrage. It was in response to the Chinese Communist Party's white paper on the one country, two systems. 
in which they rejected the notion of having a direct election for Hong Kongers to elect its future leader, uh, the chief executive, we call it in Hong Kong. It is more like a de facto head of state and it's kind of like a prime minister with similar powers, but it's the head of the Hong Kong government. So because there were scholars who proposed that the civil disobedience uh, notion, uh, similar to a lot of civil rights activists in the past. And that's why uh, Hong Kong is given the, the threat by the tear gas uh, fired by the riot police on the 28th of September 2014. Uh, Hong Kong has started to um, occupy the main thoroughfares of the uh, Hong Kong financial district so that they wanted to uh, paralyze the financial center of Hong Kong to negotiate with the Hong Kong government. Um, the whole occupation lasts for almost three months and most of the time I was there. So I, I learned about the rise and uh, fall of the Hong Kong non-violent protests. And there was a time when I started to see that I couldn't really uh, think of any positive future scenario of the future of Hong Kong. And I uh, kind of because of that um, decided to leave the city for good and start a new life in Estonia. The 2014 protests succeeded in galvanizing the political will of Hong Kongers and brought international attention to their situation. But the protests failed to achieve the democratic reforms they sought. The Beijing-controlled government made zero concessions, and they arrested the protests' leaders. Iverson went abroad, first as an exchange student to Denmark, and then, after making several Estonian friends, he moved to Tallinn in 2017 to begin a master's program in EU-Russian relations. Iverson was thus abroad, when the protests erupted again in Hong Kong in 2019. Although not working as a journalist in 2019, he followed the events closely. Iverson explains the events that led to the protests in a UW Scandinavian Studies class. Basically, in 2019, there was a Hong Kong couple. His boyfriend killed a girlfriend in Taiwan. And it's, it's a criminal offense, but then there was no extradition treaty between Taiwan and Hong Kong. So it, it all sounds logical that the Hong Kong government requested to have an extradition treaty so that they could transfer the suspected criminal from Taiwan to Hong Kong. It all sounds logical. But you think about what I just said about the sovereignty issue that Hong Kong is legally part of the People's Republic of China. So that means that even though Hong Kong has its own common law jurisdiction and independent judiciary to some sense, um, it, it, it used to act as a firewall separating Hong Kong from mainland China. But then with that proposal, that would mean that um, the extradition between Taiwan, Hong Kong, mainland China, and Macau would be possible. The extradition bill meant that any Hong Konger, say for example anyone arrested at a protest, could be extradited to mainland China and be tried in Chinese courts. Whereas Hong Kongers expect a fair trial in Hong Kong courts, they have little hope of fairness in Chinese courts, where the conviction rate is 99.9%. The bill threatened Hong Kong's autonomy and the freedom of its citizens, and once again, Hong Kongers took to the streets in protest. They had five demands. First, they demanded that the government rescind the extradition bill. Second, they demanded that the government stop referring to protesters as rioters. Third, they demanded that the government release all protesters who had been arrested and drop the charges against them. Fourth, 
They demanded that the government establish an independent investigation of police brutality. And fifth, they demanded universal suffrage and the resignation of the chief executive. We talk about the peaceful protest. One million people came out, the government didn't listen. There were classes and then the government wasn't listening. And there were 2 million out of 7.4 million Hong Kongers who showed up to, to demonstrate their, their anger. Um, so it was an extension of the 2014 umbrella revolution because back then, 2014, we were talking about one night and 87 canisters of tear gas. But then in 2019 Hong Kong protests, we were talking about 16,000 uh, rounds of tear gas and 10,000 rounds of rubber bullet over the six months of protest. So you can imagine like how frequent it was. Hong Kong literally became a city of tear gas and rubber bullets. In the face of escalating police violence, some 2019 protesters decided to fight back against the police. An Academy Award-nominated documentary film called Do Not Split documents their efforts. The film shows many examples of police brutality leveled indiscriminately against protesters and bystanders alike. In one scene, police run down a sidewalk and plow over a pedestrian. His head hits the pavement, and blood pours down his face as he cries out his innocence. The police mock him as they move on. Paramedics rush the man to an ambulance, and he complains to witnessing journalists that the police have made it unsafe to go outside. Later, the film shows police targeting the filmmakers. They charge the camera with batons drawn, ready to strike. The camera shakes as the filmmakers flee, and the film cuts to another scene. In another protest event, a medic is shot in the face with a beanbag round. Her eye ruptures. Over and over, the film documents instances of the police firing tear gas and rubber bullets into crowds. But unlike in 2014, now protesters retaliate, throwing Molotov cocktails at the police as they attempt to hold their ground and avoid being arrested and beaten. Without you, we were all peaceful, an old man shouts at the police. And as for other challenges for journalists in Hong Kong is that journalists are like the referees. So in a football match, for example, you wouldn't attack the referees. And that was what the riot police uh, was doing uh, with um, countless evidence and also different, let's say, instances that show um, the Hong Kong police was actually targeting uh, the, the journalists not to allow them to report what was happening to stop the momentum of um, the Hong Kong movement. But I can tell you that at some point, it was actually almost impossible for journalists to be completely objective because if you became uh, the victim, you became the target, then you actually couldn't really stay away from the side of understanding what was happening with the protesters because they were the ones who protected you and the police were trying to attack you in all means. The rise in violent action was also a response to the perceived ineffectiveness of the nonviolent protests in 2014. How do you make a government listen to what it does not want to hear? The different tactics employed during the six months of protest in 2019 speak to the evolution of protests in Hong Kong and to the commitment of Hong Kongers to preserving democracy. Some protesters paid the ultimate price. Here and there in between, we had quite historically, 
over a dozen uh, Hong Kongers who committed suicide to protest against the government. So you can show, you can, you can see how much frustrations there were because in any social movement, it is not very common to see people literally jumping off from the buildings, using their lives to protest against the government. It didn't happen very frequently in the world. And in Hong Kong, it was the first time that we had a wave of Hong Kongers, you know, using their lives for such cause. Chinese media presented the political crisis as a mental health crisis that was afflicting Hong Kong's youth. This framing was repeated in international journalism outlets, and the discourse had many protesters afraid that if they were arrested and extradited to China, their forced disappearances might be covered up as suicides. I think the biggest challenge is that um, there is a propaganda, and you know, people who are propagandizing, uh, they are trying to portray that there is no objective truth, that there's no fact, facts are relative. And by doing so, they are denying what is actually happening on the ground in Hong Kong back then in 2019. So for the statements you mentioned, um, they are real statements that people really declare that not just virtually, but also like physically printing papers, you know, putting that in their pockets that, you know, I'm not going to commit suicide. If, if I disappeared, then maybe something is wrong with me. Then I, I saw a lot of friends of mine actually did that on their social media uh, updates as well. So they were trying to show that, well, um, some kind of horrible things are happening in Hong Kong and we are too vulnerable to protect ourselves and please use this piece of information to protect us. And I think that was what I was uh, getting at that time. And there is, of course, some elements of uh, mental health um, challenges because if you are in a highly stressed environment on um, a nonstop 24-7 daily basis and the movement lasts for six months and, and it is quite popular believed that you have all these messages around you flowing all the time about, you know, riot police, how they attack your friends, family, arresting the people around you, someone you care. Of course, there would be um, some mental issues with the extensive um, local and international news coverage. But then what I want to emphasize, however, is that um, it is not just about uh, mental health issues. It's more about... Um, how high of a price that Hong Kongers would like to pay for the future of the uh, future Hong Kongers in, in before 2047 because we, we thought about uh, what kind of world that um, our kids want to live in in the future. And a lot of people thought about that and made a decision that they had to be the ones who sacrifice themselves and hopefully um, that could get a momentum, but actually it didn't work out very well with that um, incidences. Hong Kongers disagreed about the best form of protest. In the face of such violence, is it better to endure injury, arrest, and death, or to fight back? There was no clear consensus, but the one thing Hong Kongers agreed on was not to condemn another's form of protest. Do not split became a mantra of solidarity among the 2019 protesters. Despite differences in protest philosophy and action, Protesters reminded one another with these words to focus their criticism on the Chinese Communist Party and the police, not on one another. The 2019 protests adapted in other ways to the increasingly combative tactics of the Hong Kong police. Protesters used encrypted social media apps to communicate when and where to gather 
and when and where to flee as riot police approached. The protesters were mobile and no longer focused on occupying a single location. As Iverson explains, no big stage was the second mantra developed by protesters. It's about decentralization because in 2014, uh, there were, let's say, um, Hong Kong representatives or student representatives or uh, representatives from the political parties in Hong Kong. Uh, And once they were arrested, it kind of affected the um, approaches and tactics. And we said there was a so-called big stage. It's like the centralizing authorities um, for coordinating the, the Hong Kong movement in 2014. And people realized that you really have to decentralize so that the movement will last much longer. And actually, it kind of worked in 2019. And it is all about um, what Bruce Lee said, be water, my friend, that um, Hong Kong protesters were moving like fluid. So they are not getting stuck in one position. And that's why they had limited success in the very beginning of the protest. And also the tactics uh, deployed in, in the summer of 2019. Uh, the Hong Kong way was only one of the tactics. Other tactics were, were also including um, the uh, occupation of airport and trying not to go to school, boycotting classes and then calling for general strike and so on and so forth, or even trying to have protests in all 18 districts in Hong Kong. So these kind of things, I believe that some of them were drawn from the lessons in 2014. Iverson mentions Bruce Lee as a hero for Hong Kongers and as a hero for Seattleites. Bruce Lee was an American-born Hong Konger martial artist and actor who studied drama and philosophy at the University of Washington in the early 1960s. He is easily UW's most famous alumnus, and every day hundreds of students walk up the stairs where his trademark silhouette is painted on the Odegaard Undergraduate Library, underscoring a historic connection between UW students and Hong Kongers. Bruce Lee is remembered for his many philosophic quotes related to his fighting and acting careers, the most famous of which was first spoken in a character role in a 1971 episode of the American TV series Longstreet, and later repeated that year in a now-famous interview on the The Pierre Burton Show. I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow, or it can crash. Be water, my friend. These words have inspired countless individuals across the globe, and they inspired Bruce Lee's compatriots in the protests of 2019. And on August 23rd, the shape the protest took was that of a 60-kilometer-long human chain. The idea for a human chain protest on the anniversary of the Baltic Way was proposed by an anonymous Tallinn-based Hong Konger on a Cantonese social media site. Within a month, 210,000 Hong Kongers showed up and held hands in a line that crisscrossed every corner of Hong Kong. Within the... uh context of, of this uh, Hong Kong human chain. Hong Kongers were using a platform called uh, Telegram, it's an encrypted messaging platform. So it was entirely organic. There was like no central leader to, to lead that uh, organization. They were having like regional groups 
to arrange for the uh, allocation of volunteers, you know, where you have to stand at what time, how are you going to do that? And in the clip, you actually saw that it, it took place on the mountains. Uh, it also took place when uh, the, the uh, traffic light turned green and then, you know, people showed up and then they, they dispersed. So there were a lot of things uh, about that. So it was actually a very historical moment, uh, not just for Hong Kongers, but also for the people of the United States to extend their democratic memories stretching from 1989 with that Baltic way to the Hong Kong way inspired by the people of the Baltic states. Like the human chain organized in the Baltics in 1989, the Hong Kong way was a significant moment in a growing movement. The nonviolence of the protesters was an irrefutable counterargument to the Chinese propaganda that categorized protesters as terrorists. The lack of a center made it impossible for the police to break the protest. And the human chain bolstered the resolve of every individual who formed a link in that chain, who looked up and down that line and did the math to multiply the number of supporters needed to stretch 60 kilometers, all of them people who were willing to show up and risk themselves in the name of democracy. That momentum carried forward as the protests took a new form every night. After two more months of protest, on October 28th, the government finally withdrew the extradition bill. But with only one of the five demands met, the protests continued in November, December, and into the new year of 2020, when the emergence of the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, brought the protests to an end. Hong Kongers who had not forgotten the 2003 SARS epidemic voluntarily adopted mask-wearing and self-isolation protocols. But as Hong Kongers sheltered in place, the Beijing-controlled government got to work to create even more draconian laws. This included the National Security Law of 2020 that criminalized any form of protest and a new law in 2021 that extended the requirement for Communist Party pre-approval to all legislative candidates. Despite these defeats, Iverson remains hopeful. And probably I will be uh, a bit brief with the uh, last one. It's more touching upon with the current situation. And the last principle of the 2019 Hong Kong protest is that we want to blossom everywhere. That, that means that you can kill the protests in Hong Kong, but you can't kill all the Hong Kongers in the world. That as long as we have a Hong Kong somewhere in the corner in the world, then we have Hong Kong. That means after 2019, we had an extraterritorial national security law uh, that would effectively put anyone in jail on, on any place on the planet and even outside the planet according to that law that as long as you, you are criticizing the Hong Kong or Chinese government or you know just speaking out at you just like what I'm doing right now, it, it would be possibly violating the law and you can be violating the law abroad regardless of our nationality. So it doesn't matter whether you a European Union national or you, you are an American citizen, it doesn't matter that if you go to Hong Kong, if they think if they think that you have violated the law, then you will get jailed for up to life imprisonment in mainland China. And the first case uh, was nine years in prison. Uh, it was a man who showed the flag of um, liberate Hong Kong revolution of our times. Uh, a man who was driving a motorcycle into the uh, Hong Kong police force, but he was charged for uh, secession and also you know, with, with the idea of, you know, uh, pushing for Hong Kong independence and now serving uh, his nine years in jail. 
When I meet Iverson at the university for the unveiling of his exhibit at the Suzlo Allen Library, we discover that the exhibit has been defaced with pro-Chinese propaganda. Paper had been taped to the exhibit that read, Think critically. Respect diversity. Say no to hate, violence, and unrest. Make the world a better place for all mankind. As Iverson took it down, he commented on the paradox of the propaganda's appeal to liberal values while it advocates for an illiberal regime. Yes, I, I, I do see why you are confused with uh, the Chinese approach, as a lot of um, European elites um, are also having troubles in understanding the intentions of China. So the example of Hong Kong is actually a very classic demonstration uh, of how China is trying to weight in the, let's say, political gains and the economic benefits. So for any rational actors, they would actually think about, let's say, being cautious about uh, what kind of uh, courses they're paying and what kind of outcomes they will be receiving. But for the Chinese Communist Party, when you have to make them to choose between the economic benefits and the political gains, they are always prioritizing the um, political gains, that is the survival of the Chinese Communist regime. The very existence of Hong Kong's autonomy is actually for China is a threat for them because um, Hong Kongers are always so different from the Chinese Communist Party that we always believe in the rule of law, democracy, and basic freedoms as well as human rights. Uh, these elements do not exist in, in mainland China. And, and that's why when we have all these clashes of ideologies, China is always choosing the irrational path that is to make sure that they can secure their political gains no matter what. And this is actually hurting Chinese economy and the global economy and, of course, the livelihood of Hong Kongers. But this is what they are doing and that is what they will continue to do in a range of other issues. And I think I will take this um, opportunity for those who are listening to this podcast. Uh, don't give up Hong Kong and don't give up Hong Kongers. Maybe you would think that uh, after what you have been following with the development um, in Hong Kong, it sounds and looks very depressing and that a lot of people, uh, a lot of international supporters are having Hong Kong fatigue. Um, but on the other hand, you have to look into, for example, we have... Quite a lot of Hong Kongers living in Seattle. Some are university students, some are settled, but they are not giving up for um, their homeland, Hong Kong. And I think you shouldn't give it up because you shouldn't give up because Hong Kong is not about just Hong Kong's territory. It's more about um, how we believe in the free world and how much we want to tell the world that we are part of this global democratic alliance and we are willing to pay for everything no matter how high the cause is, we want to defend not just the freedom for Hong Kongers, but also for the world, uh, rest of the world, for the rest of the world's uh, freedom fighters and people who are living in the U.S. So I hope that if you have a chance, uh, do talk to your Hong Kong friends. And if you don't have Hong Kong friends, try to make some Hong Kong friends. And I'm sure that you will start believing in, in idealism and in an ideal world where... Um, democracies will triumph against the authoritarian regimes in the world. Thank you.
Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Hranar Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a course or declaring a major. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu. of Hong Kongers living in Seattle. Some are university students, some are settled, but they're not giving up for um, their homeland, Hong Kong. And I think you shouldn't give it up because you shouldn't give up because Hong Kong is not about just Hong Kong's territory. It's more about um, how we believe in the free world and how much we want to tell the world that we are part of this global democratic alliance and we are willing to pay for everything no matter how high the cost is, we want to defend not just the freedom for Hong Kongers, but also for the world, uh, rest of the world, for the rest of the world's uh, freedom fighters and people who are living in the U.S. So I hope that if you have a chance, uh, do talk to your Hong Kong friends. And if you don't have Hong Kong friends, try to make some Hong Kong friends. And I'm sure that you will start believing in, in idealism and in an ideal world where... Um, democracies will triumph against the authoritarian regimes in the world. Thank you. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Hranar Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a course or declaring a major. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu. Mm-hmm.